You are listening to the Genesis Podcast, a community of faith, love, and hope. As we look to the scriptures, it is our desire to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. Good morning. I also wanted to let you know a little bit about what happened in La Paz as I was in La Paz. Many of you know, for those of you who don't, we are helping a church get started out in La Paz. It's the south end of Baja. It's about two hours north of Cabo. It's a beautiful little town. Uh, It's not as commercial as Cabo. It's still a little bit more traditional, but it's definitely a little bit more advanced. And there are five uh, young adults there who really have seen there is a need to reach people that are disconnected from what church is down there. And their idea of church is very traditional, very legalistic. Uh, Catholic church is the most prominent there. But again, it is probably even more uh, conservative as far as traditions are than what we're used to here. And the the Baptist and the Pentecostal churches are pretty much the same. I remember speaking at one of the churches there, and all the men are wearing ties, even though it's like 105 degrees, they've got the shirt and the ties, and they just feel that's what you need to do if you're going to come to church. You have to dress with a suit and tie. And so then you go to their friends who don't own a suit or tie, and they say, would you want to go to church? If they were to go, they'd be the only one without a shirt and you know tie, and then they would be told to leave until they could get a shirt and tie. I know, right? It's like, whoa, hey, that's not right. So they have seen this and have wanted to reach out to those people who are not being reached because of the traditions, but they're standing alone. And a lot of people actually are now uh, telling them that they're in sin, that they need to get back to the church, you know, that they have left the church and that God is unhappy with them. And so it's a lot of pressure on them because they are standing alone in in many ways. They've got a few friends who are standing beside them, but not as many as you would hope. And we're there to stand beside them and we want to be there beside them. And so, you know, we kind of encourage them to go out and start this. And so we want to encourage them to stay the course. And so I went there and got to talk with them quite a bit. They have some great ideas. They have some ideas that they want to do uh, as far as setting up a place where they could meet that's right there on the Malancon, I think it's called. It's a boardwalk. You know, the ocean is right across the street. It's gorgeous. And they can possibly rent a place right there where they would be able to use that facility to help uh, students who need help with their schooling, to help people who are homeless maybe be able to shower, get some clothing, and really reach the community. And so one of the things that we did is we did the Strength Finder with them on Saturday night, and we kind of talked about their strengths And they're a talented group of people. I mean, they really are. They're just gifted in so many ways. And we looked at how they could utilize their strengths in actually putting this vision into motion. And so it was great. I went through their strengths with them, and I gave them this little challenge. Okay, here's a little activity for you. I want you to take this vision that you have, find out who's going to check out and find the property, who's going to be the person who talks to them about getting the property, who's going to talk to the people about setting up, what are you going to do, what's your purpose, 
And for about three hours, they sat there and just started working things out, putting out who's going to do who and what's going to happen. And every now and then I would ask them a question and they would say, oh, yeah, we talked about that already. Okay, I didn't know. I don't speak Spanish, you know, I was like, okay. But it was great to be able to interact with them and see them just have this fire inside to try and reach their community for Christ. That's what they want. And what they want to do is tear down the boundaries that have been made because of tradition to be able to communicate clearly the love of Christ to their friends, to the people who are in the community. You know, these people who really have this belief in God, but it's not like the churches. And anytime you say church, they say, no, I'm not interested because of what that means to them. Last year, many of you know, we went and did a little creativity tour, it was called, where we had some of their friends come along, and for that whole day, we did different activities, trying to connect them to the God who created all that is around them. And I got to meet with one of the guys who was there at the creativity tour, because he speaks English, and so I was able to talk with him at the creativity tour, and again, this time, he had a baby uh, this past year. Uh, he and his girlfriend and the little boy. And so we met at Starbucks and I ended up talking to him for a couple hours. And just, you know, when you have a baby, your life changes. If you know that, many of you know that. And everyone who has a baby knows that. There's no going back. Your, your life has changed. And so we talked about what it is being a parent and what that means to him. And, and we talked about the importance of him being, you know, there for his family and how important he is to not only provide financially for them, but to provide just security for them. And the conversation after a while got pretty deep as we started talking about worry and talking about the things that he was afraid of. And he started opening up to me on some of those things. And I got to share with him just how God wants to be there for him for the good and the bad and, and really shared with him some of the things I shared a few weeks ago when I talked about worry. And he started crying during our conversation just because he was just being so moved with the fact that he needed some strength. And I just got to encourage him and, and pray with him. And he said, I knew I needed to talk to you. I knew you would know what to say to me. And so it was a wonderful time for me being able to connect with him again. I know my friends down there in La Paz, they were happy. And it was kind of one of those things where they've been trying to talk to him. You know, we went back and they like want to talk to him about God and about Christ. And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And he's just been kind of closed. And then I go there, this American gringo, you know, comes down there who can't speak Spanish. And I'm talking to him and he's crying. And he goes, you come here. And he starts crying like a baby. You know, what is it? And, and it was just the right opportunity. But it was a neat way to show them how to be able to communicate to him the truths of Christ and the gospel in a way that he can actually see that he needs and so I'm praying that he's going to connect with them even more as the time goes on. Uh, but it was a great trip and got to really enjoy that. You know, and what was strange is after La Paz coming back here, I was kind of on this high, excited for the time that I got to spend with them, excited about the food that I got to eat. And Gabe had to leave on uh, Monday. And when Gabe left, Sunday night, Gabe wasn't feeling good. And Monday, he was just sick. We took him to the airport, and he was just about green, and he could hardly, you know, function, and he's still sick now, so pray he gets better, because he's taking us back to Mexico uh, Friday, but 
he was sick and so he left and I stayed one extra day and had one more meeting with them and our talks were just over food and great conversation. I mean, for hours we talked about just things that were important to them. They were asking me questions and it was, I had such a great time. And then I came back here and had a great time back at home. But then, you know, what happened with Gil happens and then all of a sudden here's a close and dear friend of mine who you're just deadly concerned about. And, and I started thinking about how there is such tension in life, how there is so much stress that comes, how there are these pendulum swings. You know, there's the excitement, you know, of a child being born, and then there is the, the scare and the fear of an illness or someone who you know who's close being very ill and it could be in the same day. And we have this variety of emotions. And what I was thinking about is, okay, how are we supposed to live in this tension? How are we who, who believe in Christ, followers of Jesus, how are we supposed to live in this balance of this great highs and these lows? And, and what are we doing? Are we just waiting for someday it to be over and, and then we'll die and go to heaven and there'll be no more problems? Is that what it's all about? Then why did Jesus say, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full? Why does he want us to have a full life now? I don't think he meant just when we die someday. What was the intention and how do you have a full life when you're on this roller coaster where sometimes things are so great and sometimes you can barely get out of bed because of the pressure that you feel, the sorrow that starts to overtake you? How do you live in this? And so I wanted to talk to you about actually embracing stress. I know that sounds weird because we don't want to embrace stress. We'd like stress to just go away. But let's face it, it's not. And so how do we embrace stress? And first I want to have a definition of stress. It's a state of mental or emotional strain or tension resulting from adverse or very demanding circumstances. And so stress is the emotion we feel by the event or the situation. It's different than anxiety. Anxiety is worrying or becoming nervous about the event or the situation. Stress is what you feel as it's happening. It's something that starts to happen to you physically. You, you start to, to sweat. Your heart starts to beat a little faster. And, and these things start to kind of show up in your biology. When I Googled, what does the Bible say? First I said, what does it say about tension? But everything it talked about was actually stress. So then I just said, okay, what does the Bible say about stress? And it was interesting because all the, the headlines were, how do you overcome stress? Or what is the cure for stress? And almost all of them had the scripture, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. With prayer and supplication, lift your request to God, and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And so all of them seem to be about how do you get over stress? How do you overcome stress? How do you trust in the Lord? 
But what I thought was interesting is this underlining theme that we are to try and live stress-free lives. And I just sat back in my chair and I said, yeah, how do you do that? Okay, if you have children, forget it. If you have parents, if you have friends, if you know anyone in humanity, you can forget about a stress-free life. Because what happens like what happened to Gil? How do you not get stressed when an event like that happens? And so I thought it was puzzling how do you overcome stress when there's no way you can ignore stress. Is stress just something that we have to try and get past? What do you do when you're living with someone who has terminal cancer and it's going on for years? You just try and get past the stress? How do you deal with that when every time you go to the hospital, every time you get a test, you have that stress? Is it something I have to overcome? And I think it's interesting because James tells us this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. James seems to be telling us that stress and these trials aren't something that we need to get over, but they're actually something that we need to embrace. Which is troubling because I, again, don't want to embrace trials of various kinds. I'm trying to read books about how to get rid of trials of various kinds, right? The Christian bookstores are filled. How to live a stress-free life. How to live a victorious life. You know, the life of Jabez. The life of Jabez's friend. The Jabez's friend's life of, you know, I mean, you'll go on and on and on about these books. And it's not that the books are bad in and of themselves, but it seems like we're always trying to get out of this reality that we find ourselves in to some place where one day it's going to be all good. I'm going to wake up and breakfast is going to be ready for me and there's going to be lots of bacon and no one's going to take the last piece and and I will be able to have that perfect cup of coffee and that day I will have to not worry about work and I will have to not worry about the kids and I will have to not worry about anything. And it's just not reality. At least it's not my reality. And so James seems to be telling us that the problem, this trial, is actually the answer. We talked about this before. How whenever there's a problem that shows up in our lives, it's actually telling us the answer we need to hear. I heard a doctor was saying or describing someone who had an injury with their knee. And they had this knee injury, and the doctor said that the pain that is your body telling you where you lack integrity. I thought, that's powerful. That's preaching there, right? I mean, your body's pain is telling you where you lack integrity. Your knee lacks integrity. The pain is telling you that it's not good. And you see, our souls sometimes are in pain, and it's telling us that we lack an integrity in our soul. 
It's telling us there's something wrong here, and it's pointing us to where we need to find healing. It's pointing us to where we need to look at and investigate so that we can get past these things. And I want to look at two pictures in Scripture and kind of contrast them. One of the things I'm going to be doing when we start our midweek back up on Wednesdays is I want to be talking about how do you go through the Scripture? How do you find interpretation? What do you do when you find one Scripture that you know, says that narrow is the gate and few are there that make it, and then you find a Scripture that says, all who come to me I will in no wise cast out? How do you interpret these two Scriptures? Or all Cretans are liars. Are really all Cretans liars? Is that what Paul meant when he said that? Or or how do we know what he meant? And so we're going to be talking about some of those things on that Wednesday night. If you are interested at all in leadership, I encourage you to be there for that as we go through these things. But everyone is welcome. But this is one of those areas I'm going to look at where we see some contrast in how two people handled their lives differently. And one is in Genesis chapter 47. We're going to talk about Jacob. You can turn there, Genesis 47, verses 1 through 9. And you know the story of Jacob, how Jacob was a twin, and his brother Esau was born first, but he, Jacob, got the blessing. He connived it. He he stole it from his brother. His brother despised the birthright. He, he sold it for a bowl of soup. But Jacob was actually there to get all that he could with the help of his mother. And so Jacob flees for his life because he steals his brother's birthright. And he thinks his brother is going to kill him. His brother was going to kill him. Years, he, he's working for Laban. He ends up marrying first Leah which isn't the woman he wanted, but he was tricked into marrying her. And then he got Rachel, the woman he wanted. And there was problems there because now he has two wives. That's never good when there's two wives, just letting you guys know. And then the children from each wife start to contend because Joseph is his favorite. And Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers because of this tension, because of this jealousy. They make, Jacob thinks that his son is dead. They go to Egypt where Joseph has now been raised up to be second under Pharaoh, who, who has been given wisdom by God to interpret dreams and to help the famine that is throughout the land. And now the, the brothers go back. There's the encounter with Joseph And then they finally bring Jacob back. And that's where we're at here in chapter 47. Jacob is now back. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, my father and brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Gosham. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, what is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh just as our fathers were. They also said to him, we have come to live here for a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let your servants settle in Gosham. Again, shepherds were people who were very low class. Pharaoh here is the king of Egypt. Pharaoh said to Joseph, 
Your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Gosham, and if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, it's really a greeting. He said, hello to Pharaoh. As Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? I think that's funny. He must have looked really old. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my father's. What a thing to say. He doesn't just tell him he's old, because I think 130 is pretty old. He tells him that my years are few and they've been difficult. Not as long as my fathers have lived, but my years are few and they're difficult. And we see towards the end of Jacob's life, constantly overtaking where he's just consumed with worry. He's worried, of course, when Joseph was taken and thought dead. He also gets worried when they have to take Benjamin, and he's fearing that he's going to lose him as well. And there's just this constant strain, this constant tension on his life. And at the end of his life, he dies just a few chapters later. And this is kind of what we get from him is, my years have been few, and they've been difficult. And I wonder if maybe that's our attitude as well. Man, life is short and it's been hard. Anyone thought that in some way or another? Thanks for being honest. I wasn't really asking you to, but yeah, I have, right? Man, sometimes life is just difficult and it seems like it's going so quickly. And it's such a struggle, you know, I know that the Scripture teaches us things by, by telling us about the lives of the individual. In other words, doctrine comes out of these stories that we read, these things that we see. And Jesus did it even more so in the parables. But we start to see in Jacob's life, this man, life is tough. Man, life is hard. There is this kind of strain on him that you almost feel and you almost sense. But I want to go to the end of someone else's life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. And this is the end of Paul's life. And let's look at how Paul brings this statement. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Such a little cry there. Paul says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. This is happening now as he speaks. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do you see a difference in these two in their last statements? Man, life is short and hard. And man, I've run the race. I've completed it. There's something more waiting for me. Not only for me, but for everyone 
who is longing for his appearing. And we see almost like this is two different stories. Well, it is two different lives, but it's two different perspectives on the end of their life and how they're viewing it. One is I had meaning, I had intention, I fulfilled what I was supposed to do. The other person is, man, it's hard and it's over. And I start thinking, who am I? How am I going to respond as my life goes on when I get old? What is going to be my perspective at that time? You see, you're going to live a life that has stress, has tension, has trials. You know, many of you, the story of Paul. He was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned. He by no means lived an easy life. But we don't see at the end of his life, man, life was hard. Do you know how much I had to endure? We see this man, I've made it. This excitement almost that he has done the task, that there was meaning to his life, and that meaning brought to him life and hope. My daughter sent me a TED Talk, a woman named Kelly McGonagall. And some of the findings in this talk were amazing. And I first want to ask you here, how many of you have had a little stress the past year? You'd raise your hand and say, I've had a little stress. Okay. How many of you would say, well, I've had more than a little. It's been moderate. I've been moderate. I see some of the same hands going up. Okay. How many of you would raise your hand and say, it was a stressful year. <laughs> Some of you, your hands were up before I even said it. <laughs> You're just like, it was a stressful year. Okay, I'm about to save your lives. I just want you to know that ahead of time. They did a study. 30,000 adults for eight years. They asked them two questions. The first question is, how much stress have you experienced in the last year? The second question was, do you believe that stress is harmful for your life? And so I want you to answer this in your own mind right now. Do you believe that stress is harmful in your life? Some of you are shaking your head, so I know the answer to that. Then what they did is they used uh, public death records, and they found out basically who died. Of all these people that they interviewed, they found out which ones died. And what they found out is that people who experienced a lot of stress the previous year, had a 43% increase in the risk of dying. That's the bad news, okay? Everyone's feeling a little freaky right now, right? But that is only true for the people who believed that stress was harmful for their life. What they found is people who experienced a lot of stress but did not view stress as harmful, were no more likely to die. In fact, they had the lowest risk of dying of anyone who was in the study, including people who relatively had low levels of stress. What they found out is how you think about stress is what affects how it affects you. 
Think about James. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. It's kind of a different attitude that's taking place. The researchers estimated that over eight years, they were tracking the deaths of 182,000 Americans that died prematurely, not from stress, but from the belief that stress is bad for you. 20,000 people die in America a year believing that stress is bad for you. Not the stress, but your thoughts about the stress. How you think about it, what you bring into that. You see, we spend so much energy trying to stop stress in our lives as if that were even possible. And so all our energy is trying to, oh, I'm going to get out of that. I'm going to vacation here. I'm going to just stop this. I can't do that. I can't do that. And we try to avoid stress, but it's not the stress that's the problem. It's how we think about it. And if we would change our minds about those things that would stress us out, about those areas of tension, if we would change how we think about it, it would actually change our body's response. You see, they're able to tell that in stressful situations, certain things happen. Again, your heart starts beating faster. You start sweating. And you guys have been there. Years ago, Karina and I had a couple of really close friends. We'd go with them on vacations together, and they had connections. One of our friends knew someone who was working for Niederlander, and so we'd get like front row tickets to the Forum and to the Greek Theater, get to see Phil Collins like right up there in front, saw Paul McCartney, got to go into the VIP room. I mean, just amazing things. And we were good friends, and he had this connection where this guy had a house up in Big Bear, and we call it a house. It wasn't a house. It was called the Chateau. The Chateau had three master bedrooms, king-size beds, bathroom in each bedroom. It was right on the lake. You look outside, there's the lake. Had a huge balcony, had a pool table, three stories, had an indoor barbecue, had a wonderful fireplace, and we got to go there two years at the Christmas time. And it was snowing, and we brought our kids there, and it was just this wonderful time. The boys were just babies, and it was just so nice, so relaxing. We just enjoyed it. This is the life at the Chateau de Longe. I forget the name. One year, the Chateau wasn't available, but we were so used to going out with our friends, we said, well, let's go and rent a house. Okay, we rented a house, a cabin up in Big Bear. You know, you look and it says two bedrooms. Yeah, that's all we need, you know. We had the twins. They had their youngest son or their oldest son. So he said, yeah, that's fine. So we rented this house. We got to the house. It was not the chateau. <laughs> if you put your arms like this, you could just about touch both walls, okay? It was, it was this A-framed house that was just tiny. The, the dining room table was against the wall and you'd lift it up and then pull a leg out. You could sit three people around the dining room table. Okay, so there's Kareen, myself, Henry, Gloria, the twins, and Jonathan, their son. There's seven of us and we got a table that will seat three. There is no room for the kids to do anything. The chateau, 
there was room. There was lots of room. You could set the kids down on the floor. They could crawl for days. The chateau, the fireplace is there, the table's there, and the couch is right here. And so we are just trying to get out. We're going outside, but it's snowing and it's really cold. And we went outside one time and there's like wild burrows running through. And like, what the heck? There's donkeys out here. You know, and so finally we had this idea. Let's drive to Lake Arrowhead. Let's take a drive. Take the kids to Lake Arrowhead. There's some shop or something they wanted to go to. Let's get out of this house. We're getting claustrophobic. Although Henry and I stayed up late and watched videos all night. Um, had a great time, but we got in the van. Three of the kids, Henry and Gloria, were in the front seat. Corrine was in the second seat with Jonathan, and I was in the back between the twins. And we started driving these windy roads, and the kids started crying. So there's Jonathan crying, and there's the twins in stereo right by me. They're just screaming. And I should tell you also an important part that both Corrine and Gloria were pregnant. The early stages of pregnancy, you know, when your stomach is a little queasy. And so we're on these winding roads going to Lake Arrowhead. And I don't remember which one started first, but one of them lost it. And she started throwing up, and it was only a second later before the other one started throwing up. And so we've got Gloria in the front seat in a trash bag, hurling into the bag. We've got Corrine in the middle seat, hurling into the bag. And we got three kids screaming at the top of their lungs. And I'm in the back seat, just like watching this all unfold. And then I see Henry's eyes look at me in the rearview mirror, and his eyes are like this. They're going, what the heck is going on? And and we couldn't pull over because we're on this winding road. There's cars behind us, and we're like just waiting for the nearest place to get off while they're just losing it. The kids are losing it, and Henry and I are just holding on, white-knuckling it for our lives. Finally, we pull over to the edge of the road and we pull up right in front of a restaurant with this big window and Corrine and Gloria come out and just lose it all over the snow into this restaurant. It was a stressful situation. Couldn't be avoided. It was like it was hurled upon us. And we were there captivated by all that was happening. And you see, that's just something that happens with stress. You, you can't change the event, but what you can do is start to change your mind about it. As that stressful situation happens, my heart was pounding. I was just, man, like, what is going on here? I was sweating and I wasn't the one who was sick. I was just long for the ride. But those things happen to you. But you see, in a Harvard study, they put stressful situations to people. They would have a test, an experiment, and they'd put people in this stressful situation. They'd have a group of however many people there. And they would say, okay, we want you as a group to to do some math problems. Okay, already some of you are getting stressed, right? Math? That's not my subject. Okay, I want you to count from 996 backwards by sevens. Okay, go. Okay, go. No, faster. Faster. Come on. 
what's wrong? Okay, stop, stop. We got to start it over because you didn't do the good job. That's the kind of test they put people in, right? So people are like, whoa, what's going on? Putting them through this kind of stress. And what's happening is your body starts preparing you for something. You see, you're breathing quicker and you're sweating more because your body has to put more focus. And so what you start to see is that stress isn't just happening to you, it's actually preparing you for something. Your body is getting prepared to deal with this situation, whatever the situation is. The heart beating faster, you you breathing harder is providing more oxygen to your brain. And these people who were taught to review this situation as helpful were less stressed out, less anxious, more confident, but most importantly was the way that it affected their physical condition. You see, because in the stressful situation, when your blood vessels start to constrict because you're so stressed about the situation, it's unhealthy. But when you start seeing the situation as a challenge, as your body preparing you for the event that's happening, your blood vessels actually open up and now more blood flows through as it's supposed to. And so what is stressful that you think is bad actually becomes something that becomes a positive experience. And instead of responding to what happens in a negative way, that person experiences are actually similar to that of joy and of courage, even though it's stress. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into divers' trials of various kinds. And so something is happening. It releases a hormone, oxytocin. I don't know these terms. It's a hormone that helps to strengthen us in different ways. It also strengthens our social interaction. They call oxytocin the hug hormone because you feel that or that hormone's released when you hug someone. And so it's like, ah, oxytocin is coming out of my system. When it's released, it's kind of nudging you to talk to someone. Have you ever felt stressed and you need, I need to call someone? I'm going to call my friend. Why? Because you've got this happening and it starts to release this hormone and you feel the need to engage with someone. And so now you start talking to people. You, you feel this need and it's released when you're stressed. One of the main effects that oxytocin is, its effect on your body is it's a natural inflammatory and it reduces the effects that stress has on your cardiovascular system. And so when you start to engage with other people and see what is happening to you as an event that you are going to go through, it changes how your body reacts to it. Instead of your vessels constricting, they actually open up. And it actually becomes something that's kind of like a rush. I'm going through this, and it becomes an exciting adventure, like in a van with two pregnant women and three crying children. All of a sudden, wow, this is exciting. (laughs) And so that's why when you feel this stress, you connect easier with people. It actually helps... Heart cells repair themselves, and it repairs your heart for the damages that would be caused by stress. These hormones actually start to heal your 
heart. When you seek help from someone or for someone, you actually release this hormone and you heal more quickly. So they did another test with about 1,000 adults, ages 34 to 93, and they asked, how much stress do you experience in the last year? They also asked them, how much time have they spent helping friends, neighbors, or people in their community? And again, with public records, as time went on, they looked to find out who died. And for every major stressful life situation, financial, uh, familial, crisis that's happening, there was an increase in the risk of dying by 30%. But people who spent time in helping others showed absolutely no stress-related increase in dying. That the caring for others created resilience. You see Paul at the end of his life. I've run the good race. I have have given my life so that these people could have life. And we see in him this resilience. It didn't matter what happened to him. There was so much meaning in Paul's life that nothing could stop him from being alive. Because he was alive in God. How you think and how you affect how you act affect your body's response. And when we choose to see stress as something that we can respond to in a healthy way, it actually becomes helpful to us. You create a biology of courage. And when you choose to connect with others, whether you're under stress or they're under stress, you create a resilience biologically to cope with those things and to deal with it in actually a very healthy way. You see, what it is doing is it's bringing meaning into the purpose of your life so that now I'm not living to avoid stress. I'm not living to just get life easier because I got to tell you that isn't coming anytime soon. You're not guaranteed that. And if you're waiting for it and then the stressful situation comes, you're going to start stressing out and you're, you're going to start closing your heart's going to start feeling just tense and you're going to start killing yourself. But when a situation comes in your life and you say, I'm going to count this, this is an opportunity. My body is preparing me for whatever lies ahead and I'm going to meet it head on. Because most of the times when you're dealing in a stressful situation, it's involving someone else. And now I'm going to give myself to this person. I'm going to give myself to this situation. I'm going to take this stressful experience I'm going through and I'm going to put myself into it. Now all of a sudden I've got courage to go through this thing. Why? Because I'm now counting it joy that I'm going to get through this trial. Is it difficult? Of course it's difficult. Does it hurt? Of course it hurts. But I have a life that is connected to meaning that the situation cannot rob from who I am because I belong to the God who's given me life. And I can go through this. It's not going to sway me. We need to embrace that resilience. Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. That should be in one of those little promised bread things that they give. 
In the world you will have trouble, Jesus said. There it is. But what does he go on? He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The tribulation is going to come. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. There's enough going on today. There's enough trouble here. You see, but that doesn't sway me. That's just my opportunity to dive into life and bring life to the people who are around me. And we have to get out of a mentality that wants to escape problems and escape stress and see it as opportunities to invest our lives in and take courage. That's why we can go and help people who are in difficult needs. Why? Because we are stepping into their life. We are connecting to them, and we are going to be bringing life not only to them, but to ourselves. And so let's change our mentality as how we get through life. Let's not try and just get out of the situation. Let's see every situation that comes into our lives as the opportunity to actually bring meaning into these situations so that we can be more than conquerors through Christ who gives us strength. Why? Because we change the situation? No, we bring health to the situation. We bring meaning to the situation. We bring Christ to each of these situations. And then God's love is manifested. We connect with people with the love of Christ and God is acknowledged. Let's start dressing our lives for the kingdom of God. Not just our own kingdom. Let, let's clothe ourselves with things that look like what heaven looks like so that whatever is happening in our lives, whatever trial is taking place, we can look at and say, I count this joy because it's producing in me something healthy. It's producing perseverance. It's connecting me in a stronger way to God and to others. Let's pray. Lord, it's amazing how our biology really supports your theology. It's amazing how you have fearfully and wonderfully made us and that our lives have the ability to even bring health to ourselves in times that would seem to tear us down. But Lord, what we need in the middle of those times is meaning. We need to not see these situations as dangerous, but see them as opportunities. And so I pray that that would take place here. All of us who raised our hands because it has been stressful would no longer look at this stress as being something that is over us. We would not look at stress as something that is harmful to us. We would look at stress as an opportunity for our bodies to respond in a healthy way. And may we bring meaning into these areas of our life and not be victims by stress. But might we enter them 
with the confidence that if you are for us, who and what can be against us? That in this world, we're going to have tribulation, that this is to be expected, but we can take heart. We can take courage because we belong to you and you have overcome the world and you are overcoming the world in and through your people. And I thank you for the hope that is in you. I do thank you for the promises and your unfailing love. In Jesus' name, amen. Now praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. May you abound in Christ. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.